I don't understand the moral position of absolute freedom. And the reason is because when I hear people talk about it, it's very obvious to me that absolutely everybody knows that there are limits to freedom. So absolute freedom is not something that anybody believes in. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB group.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also today, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, 
and then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. You're a little underdressed today, Peter. <laughs> I just tried to stay you out there. <laughs> uh, I am. Um, I'm not in the. This uh, is a professional show. Have you seen? Like I, uh, Jeffrey Tucker. I, I did. I did the Jeffrey Tucker. I like it, man. You like him? I like, like. I like it. Thank you. And uh, I guess we're going to stay clothed today. I will stay clothed. That's, this will be the first podcast we've done where you've got your clothes. That's on. actually true. Yeah. Um, the first one though wasn't recorded on camera, so I know. we were doing. That was the BU comeback. I had my uh, top off that day. You did good. actually. Yeah, so that's rare for me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I don't own handsome. it. I don't own it. I yeah. actually, I was about stone thin. The memes, the memes last time were fun though. Uh, they rare pepe'd me. Did like, they? I, they did. Uh, like someone that. added uh, milky tits to me. <laughs> I did <laughs> see that. I did see that. <laughs> there were some complaints about that show. Oh, it was very controversial. I noticed that like a lot of people didn't like uh, the the assertion that the metaverse is uh bullshit to say it B bs for youtube i think BS. uh i think the complaint's more about the intoxication of the three of us you know i wasn't drunk at all i mean i wasn't drunk at all mm -hmm. so you know <laughs> <laughs> well listen man you're very popular lots of people will love what you had to say somebody even made a suggestion and said i should have you on as a co-host oh yeah yeah uh, you'd make me look good. I'm in. Let's do it. You'd yeah. make me look good. <laughs> pull, pull the mic back a bit. It's like okay. you're right in it. A popping a little bit. Little there we bit. go. Yeah, come on. You you know this shit. Well, yeah, but I like to kiss things. Uh, <laughs> and my wife doesn't let me do it to her, so just kidding. Uh, that would be that would be fun. I would, you know, if, if that's an offer, I accept. Uh, the show's 50% mine. No, no, <laughs> no it, it's a, it's I love the show. I think it's great. I think you guys do a really good job. Um, well, we should talk more. Yeah. Because you're a good sounding board for me. Good. I like to hear that. Well, so we got a big topic uh, today. Um, rightfully so, there's a lot of distrust and dislike for a lot of governments at the moment. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. Um, there are also a lot of Bitcoiners who believe in things like the sovereign individual thesis or the end of the state. Uh, we have many people listen to the show, libertarians, anarcho-capitalists. Um, I am not. I am... Uh, I'm reluctantly pro-democracy, and I am uh, somebody who wishes the state was smaller, but I believe uh, no state would be a net worse decision. And I also believe the state is a natural conclusion. If you get rid of it, you end up rebuilding it. But I think it's a, it's a useful topic to talk through because it really pisses people off that I or others don't hold the same position. And uh, I, I think you should always be honest with, with what you think and what you think, but I thought you would be a good person to work it through because... The desire for absolute liberty is a very, I understand the moral position, but I think it comes with risks and uh, potentially is net worse. I, I don't understand the moral position of absolute freedom. And the reason is because when I hear people talk about it, it's very obvious to me that absolutely everybody knows that there are limits to freedom. So absolute freedom is not something that anybody believes in. It's kind of like free markets. You know, the free markets, I would say that like the moment that you require people wear pants to come and trade, you no longer have a free market and because uh, there's a rule. And that's just the way like I think you're right. I think that like government is the natural end of most anarchic systems. You just end up with like a different form or maybe a similar form. I don't know. Like 
what is uh what does Churchill say? This uh, democracy is a terrible system, except for all the rest, or something. It's the like worst that. form of government, yeah. except apart from all the apart from all the others. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's probably correct. Although, like the state, the the state does uh, suck right now. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of problems. Uh, I've done this for years. Like talked like when we were doing Bitcoin Uncensored, we talked a lot about like externalities, and one of the things we would say that was provocative was that freedom is an externality. Because like you don't know, like you have absolute freedom. It's great until your neighbor comes and like shits on your lawn, you know. And uh, if you have a bunch of people together, like how do you deal with that? And libertarians will cite the NAP principle or whatever, and uh, that breaks down pretty quickly as soon as you have a person who's willing to do violence to you very quickly before you can respond or you know murder you. So I've always I've always found uh, arguments for freedom to be very interesting, particularly in Bitcoin. And when I came here, I actually uh, would have called myself an anarchist. I was very strongly in support of the deconstruction of the state. And, uh, and what changed my mind was watching prominent Bitcoiners at conferences and having them come up to me and tell me that they like, I went to a conference called Coins in the Kingdom and there was an obvious Ponzi scheme sitting in the middle of the floor. And they were advertising their services and going like, basically, basically, we are a Ponzi scheme. Come and give us your money. And I was like, oh, okay, well, they're a Ponzi scheme. So I went and sat in the middle of the floor for the rest of the conference. And just as people came up to the table, I'd be like, this is very obviously a Ponzi scheme. This is a Ponzi scheme. You know, at the end of, at the end of the weekend, one of the libertarian, like a really prominent libertarian who many libertarians have heard of came up to me and goes, thank you so much. I was going to send in a bunch of money to that, to that group. Thanks for informing me. And I was, re I realized that day that like these people who are adults who have their money, who are screaming about the fact that they want the government to not like tell them what to do. Um, they're so irresponsible that they can't identify like very obvious schemes in the space and they give their money to them all the time. And that's been true of most of us. I think like if you've been in Bitcoin, if you were in Bitcoin early or if you've been in long enough, it's hard not to come up with like a person who hasn't given their money somehow to a scam. But, but isn't that what the free market does? It weeds out the scams from the legitimate projects because you have a free market to decide what is and isn't a scam and ultimately they get defunded. Uh, ultimately, but then a lot of people lose their money. And in a society, it's very hard because if you, if you have a lot of people losing their money, uh, they, you know, things, things happen. Like as they get older, they don't have money for retirement. They, they can't pay their medical bills. Like, you know, there's all sorts of things that are problematic in a society where we like all kind of like take on some of the burden together to live with one another. So, um, yeah, I mean, like it's to me the the idea of ultimate freedom has never made any sense. The libertarian ethos in general has always been something that I've really been bothered by because everything is sort of this absolutist statement. Like we don't like, we are, you know, um, Inflation is bad, right? Something like that. Like inflation is bad. Well, inflation is just like a decrease in your spending power, right? And Bitcoin causes that all the time. Like Bitcoin's dropped 50% sometimes, and that is a decrease in your spending power. So I always, when we were doing BU, I would like point out like, oh, Bitcoin inflated 50% or like 100% yesterday. <laughs> it would really piss them off. But I, I think it's a fair. I think it's a fair point. But I think these things are wor worth working through. And the reason being is that I am somebody who 
reluctantly re- reluctantly supports the idea of democracy. Yeah. Because I look around the world and I see everything else. Your yeah. government's simp. Well, I mean, and I actually prefer the US form, and it's not democracy, it's a republic. I understand that. but it's like not democracy, it's a republic, Peter. Yeah, I know. But in my mind, democracy means the ability to vote. Okay, let's, let's just establish right. that. And you have the ability to vote here within a republic. Right. And, and it's obviously in many ways a better system than we have in the UK. But at, but at the same time, I'm not one of these burn it down uh, people. But but I had a discussion on Twitter recently came up where somebody was challenging my thoughts on this. And they said, well, let's start with first principles. Is coercion bad? And I'll ignore the discussion I had about first principles with the person. But it's very hard to come back and say, is, is coercion bad? No, it isn't. Coercion is okay. I mean, nobody wants to be coerced. But I think it simplifies something that is complex, and I don't think you can, I don't think you can make a decision on how uh, 330 million people here, 70 million in the UK, how they can organise and govern themselves based on this one first principle, because it sets well, it, it, it puts you in a place where you can't deal with the nuance. Well, I would say it's not even right. Like coercion is good sometimes. Okay. Like I don't know. The, the, you're in a house. Uh, the house is on fire. And like someone comes up and coerces you to go out. Like coercion is not bad simply because it's coercion. This is is fundamentally the problem with a lot of this sort of, what do they call it, praxis? Praxiology. Praxiology, which sounds like a a doctor who looks at your butt um, as a proctology. proctology. Praxiology, like it's, this is the problem with it because there's, there's so this idea that you go back to first principles and you ask these questions that seem like they have very simple answers, but they don't like coercion. When your insurance company tries to go get you to like do one of your once your checkups, they offer incentives. That's coercive. It's good for you. Like coercion is not bad simply because it's coercion. And while you may have this sort of visceral reaction to it, it, it's not necessarily bad. So the answer to is coercion bad? The answer is not necessarily. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's not. And that's, I mean, that's again, like every, this, this notion, like the, the libertarian belief is that you like divide things into two categories. You have like good and you have the bad side. And they have this list of words they put on the bad side and they ask you questions. And, and like, oftentimes it's stuff that you've never really considered, right? You've never really thought about whether coercion is bad and then they say it to you and all of a sudden like you're kind of forced into this corner like well it it actually does i i hate being coerced um i I don't like coercion by the state generally like coercion eh, i guess coercion is bad yeah and you don't think about the fact that like there's a lot of times when coercion is just fine and you as a parent probably coerce your kids to do things like it's not bad because it's bad there's not there's not things that are bad and things that are good inflation sometimes probably fine they coerce me to do things as well, my kids. Yeah. Well, that's what kids learn coercion early. I mean, that's the thing. Like, even as a kid, like, you know, kids coerce teachers into giving them better grades so they can get it into better colleges. Like, these are all things, like, coercion is not bad simply because it's coercion, you know. And uh, and that's, like, I don't understand this whole idea of living in a world where your philosophy is based on, like, good things and bad things. Because to me, like... There's a lot of nuance. There is not a good thing and a bad thing. Sometimes things are, are, I mean, most things are neutral at the very least. And we have a word, maybe coercion is bad because like the, the sort of connotation of the word is bad. But I can think of times, many times, many, maybe even a majority of the coercion that we experience on a day to day, day basis is not bad. It's just coercion yeah. based on how society functions. What is, I mean, what is, a, what is an advertisement? 
like they're coercive in some ways. Mm, I'd, I'd find that one more of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, but I'm just saying, like, you're coerced. You're coerced regularly, and uh, and I don't know. I I don't know why it would just be like bad because it's called coercion. It doesn't make sense to me. I think it comes from that point of uh, no one has like rule over me. No one can tell me what to do. I was born free, therefore I should be free. Yeah, you're born naked. Then your parents put clothes on you. I mean, the the state of nature arguments as well are always like very interesting to me because, you know, we're, we're born in, I mean, this, I, I, I talked to libertarians about this in Bitcoin for many years and this idea that like you, you arrived here and it's sort of this like a, I see this with millennials in particular. They love they love to they see the world in this way, but there's this idea that I arrived here in the world as I arrived is like somehow like a, a a state of nature that I should start from right. So I have a house, I have land, I live in the middle of South Dakota, and this is great. I have ten acres, it's beautiful, and uh, the government can't tell me what to do. And then, like, you go back, you're like, yeah, but, like, you know, four or five, six generations ago, the government ran a bunch of Indians off your land. Uh, They killed a bunch of people. And then the army said that we're going to defend your land. And uh, they put them on a little reservation, and now you have it. And, like, to me, it's it's very interesting that this sort of, like, disacknowledgement of, like, what happened to get the thing that you have. And I'm, like, not a fan of, like, sort of this modern like intersectional history stuff that everybody's doing. But there there is a historical precedent for, like, what we have today like libertarians living on like you know 10 acres of land or something like that and and like raising cows and refusing to get like environmental studies done and such like all it's very interesting to me that they like issue this sort of government when the government is the thing that kept and protected their land in the first place for many many years many generations and there's no no acknowledgement of it well there is also that uh chronological benefit of property rights yes Yeah, uh, when people we'll, we'll get into property well, rights. We have but. strong property rights in the West. Yeah, like it's it's in, it's again like very interesting. I mean, th- this is a, you see this in Bitcoin all the time. Like countries that don't have strong property rights, people look at and they're like, oh, blockchains will solve that, right? Like Honduras with Factum, they said that we were going to put all the land records on blockchains. Somehow that magically like creates property rights. There's this belief that like somehow if it's on a blockchain, you can you have property rights. Right. Uh, you, I don't know, put it in Ethiopia or something like that. The belief is that if a child soldier comes around or like an adult soldier comes around and says, this is my land now. Well, you know, like you have this thing that you can appeal to, like, well, the blockchain says it's actually mine. He's like, well, I'll shoot you, you know, and uh, and and he'll take your land. And that's the same thing. Like in, in the West, we have very strong property rights structures that have been developed over like hundreds of years. And uh, and it's wonderful. It's really wonderful for us to like live in. But at the same time, like this idea that the government wasn't part of that, like to me, it's it's unfathomable to have strong property rights without strong government. Well, that's a conversation we had yesterday. Uh, if the basis is property rights, who's going to protect your property rights? Right. Your gun. Well, me, I'm gonna I'm gonna hire a bunch. I'm gonna hire a mercenary army. But <laughs> but but but, but let, let, you can game it through. Okay, so you've got yeah. ten acres of land. Uh-huh. I turn up with my militia. I kick you off it. How do you enforce your property rights if there's no government yeah i i agree um but, but there are answers to that I'm, what i'm saying is libertarians have answers to that they say there will be independent arbitrators but who gives but, them authority correct courts i mean like again you but every, every time you have that discussion like you you end up backing into an entire system of government um which is like very 
very dumb. Like the fact that you're trying to like get rid of government and substitute it with, you know, some other form that looks a lot like government. Uh, and that's, that always happens like, cause you, you have to come back somewhere. And so you're going to have this like whole system of like independent, like, uh, arbitration, independent courts, independent, like, you know, whatever it is that they say. And at the other end, you just end up with government, well, all the services of government. But even, even in that thing, this is where I see some of the things that are broken have not really been thought through correctly. So even if you have an independent court and you take me to an independent court yeah. to say that property is yours. But I take you to another independent court. And they it's, it's choose my, differently. They choose yeah. differently. Who has the overall authority on that? And I, I've still nev never heard a good answer to that. The answer is the person with the bigger mercenary armor, army. But, <laughs> but, potentially. And who, who says without risk of you know, imprisonment, who isn't going to be uh, uh, vulnerable to you know, in different incentives? If I'm very rich and I wanted your land and I go to that independent court and I know who the judge is, what's to stop me leveraging that position? And I know you can do that in the current system now, but there is that monopoly of power which becomes a risk. The monopoly of power, which is coercion. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, who enforces a lot of that stuff? Like, we have sheriffs. We have, you know, elected bodies and stuff like that. Like, there's – I think I think the problem of, of, uh, of freedom is that there's this notion that it can be unbridled. And, like, you can – the state, like we are talking about the state of nature arguments, like this idea that like you're born naked into the world, you you go out naked and you can be naked in between all of that time. And that's totally okay. And uh, just this idea that like you can kind of do anything you want, but nobody wants to acknowledge like the role of government. And my, my belief is that the, the role of government is a very strong, uh, the place where it's strongest is in its management of externalities. And free, like, if you acknowledge that freedom is one of those externalities, you have to acknowledge that there are like limits to that sort of state of nature argument. And that's the same thing with like, you know, you have land upstream with somebody else's land. Can you let your cows poop in it? Can you, uh, can you build a dam? Can you do whatever, destroy like what's going on downstream, kill the trout? Um, I mean, all of these are things that like are very difficult to answer because like property rights you'd think would supersede, like they're on my land, I can do whatever I want. But like these things affect things downstream. They affect your neighbor. I mean, the, the, the fire department, if your house is burning and it's putting your neighbor's house at risk. And, you know, in the libertarian world, you're paying for insurance, right? Or you're paying for the fire department stuff. So like if you're paying a fire department to put out the fire, do they come and put out both fires? Um, you know, like if your house is burning, it's putting your neighbors at risk and let's say you don't pay, right? So like they'll just let it burn until it hits the house that burns. Like it's, it's absolute insanity. Like when you take these things to their logical extent and I hear them argued all the time to their logical extent, which, you know, blows my mind. Well, why why do you think that happens then? Because I don't I, I don't do this to insult anyone listening. Uh, I really want to hear the uh, ideas and the conversations. And, and you know what? There's a lot I agree with libertarians on as well. I think they've got some great ideas. Uh, I've often said I, I wish the libertarians would engage more in politics because uh, the libertarian influence on reducing the size of the state would be great. Some of their ideas would be great. But this kind of binary, let's press the big red button, let's get rid of the state, or that's the ultimate position to be in, it, to me, logically doesn't work. Now, now you can make other net arguments. You could say, okay, if you got rid of the government, you might not have this massive uh, military-industrial complex. You might have un not have unnecessary wars, and that can go into the net argument. But on a day-to-day -day societal organizational kind of structure, I think it I, it feels like it completely fails. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's always hard because like you can build a straw man up of libertarian values and libertarian thoughts and such. But 
like when when I've just I mean like the pro I think you're correct as as sort of like a, a, a group of people in politics they're a good force because they're pushing like back on politicians making more and more laws they're they're like trying to identify sort of the ridiculous elements of government which I I, I appreciate I appreciate that like we have someone kind of overlooking the government in that way but the problem is that like a lot of the stuff they do is sounds very crazy their rhetorical flourishes are idiotic like Ron Paul screaming about like auditing the Fed. Uh, the, the claims that like there's not enough gold and that we're really bankrupt and you know this sort of like belief that America is like super corrupt in ways that it just clearly is not. Um, I think it's very difficult. To is look. that true though? I mean, yeah. what is wrong with auditing the Fed? It's audited every year. It is. Yeah. So why why is they why are they? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. This is my response to to libertarians. I mean, you can look it up. Yeah. Like you'll find the Fed audits. Um, I, I usually I, who, I keep who does them on the my audit? computer. Does the Fed do it themselves? I don't actually know. I think the Fed probably does it themselves. I mean, uh, there's a reason to be suspicious there. Yes, yeah, like I mean, it says that it's audited annually by an independent public accounting firm. Which one? It doesn't actually say here. I mean, independent firms have been compromised. Compromised before. Well, a bit like who, who does the audit? Ron Paul? Like, does he go in there himself and just like start counting? Things? I like, like Ron Paul. <laughs> I, I, but who does the audit? Like, an independent firm is. Per, I, I was, so I have these audits on my computer whenever I get in like arguments with libertarians and they say like, we need to audit the Fed. I'm like, oh, which, like, what's wrong with this audit? Can you like go through it and tell me? Because most of them don't even know that those audits exist. What do they actually, do they actually have anything in the Fed? I don't know. Like, like 12 people, 12 employees, $37. <laughs> Six bars of gold. Six bars of gold. <laughs> I mean, but here you go. All right. Federal you got it. There you go. Does it say who did the, did, did, uh, who are the independent auditors? It's probably in there. Oh my god, this this one. It probably is like Ernst Young, Pricewaterhouse Cooper, KPMG. KPMG. There you, oh, go. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I always find it funny when someone has a signature for a company. That is interesting. It's kind of that weird. <laughs> but yeah, like there's there's audits. Um, so there's a lot of these claims that like are just sort of disprovable and they're they're problematic. Like because like like I said, like it's it's a very interesting college sort of philosophy. I remember in college, I would talk to these people who I'd never heard of libertarianism when I went to college. I didn't know it was a thing. I, I didn't, didn't hear it. Was. I hadn't heard of it till Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think for you and me, like there, there were people who came to college as libertarians. They were strong. You know, they, they'd read uh, Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead and stuff. And I, I'd read, I, I remember reading Atlas Shrugged in high school. And like, I was told by my father that there was a philosophy behind it. And I, I read it and I was like, oh, it's just kind of a shitty book. So it's just kind of a crappy, crappy book. And uh, and then I went to college, and there were people who like really loved the book for its like philosophical tenets, and I was surprised by that because it just wasn't that interesting to me. It was a long like screed that didn't really have any influence on how I viewed the world. Whereas like I don't know, I read uh, Victor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning, right? That changed my outlook on life completely. Changed me from like this person that like seeks out happiness to a person that like really understands the world as a place where we, we have to seek out satisfaction. And I like, I think Jordan Peterson is the guy that like has really kind of taken on that mantle for a lot of people. But like, for me, it was Viktor Frankl himself where he talks about like, you know, satisfaction being the most important sort of uh, meaning in your life is that you, you do things they're satisfying. So that was a really important book for me, but like for some reason, you know, I get to college and there's a bunch of people that are reading Atlas Shrugged and they find it to be very important. And I was, I thought like, I thought the book was terrible. And, uh, 
and and I learned all about libertarianism. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered much of the thought that they were they were discussing. So like I didn't have arguments against it. And it took me many years to kind of like, you know, imbue myself in that milieu and sort of understand exactly what uh, what libertarian libertarianism was all about and why I agreed or disagreed with it and where it is that I disagreed with it. And, uh, and I appreciate many of the arguments. Like I appreciate the bent towards freedom. I appreciate that. It's just interesting to me that like many of them don't seem to grow out of this like notion of, uh, they don't, they don't question many of the things that they talk about. Like again, the auditing the fed, like we just, we brought it up. There's, there is a fed audit every year and that blows their mind. I bring that up because like, that blows, they say it all the time, and it blows their mind that we audit the Fed every year. We've been doing it for a very, very long time. Do you want to know what's had the most influence on my life? Tell me. Doing this, without doubt. The last four years of this. Oh, interesting. Just talking to people. Yeah, and i tell you why. It, it's made me appreciate there's a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different opinions. And most of the time, I can empathize with where they're coming from. And I will always try and discuss with a range of people there, you know, what they believe. So whether it's climate change, which we can talk about, uh, doesn't exist. Well, we've had um, we've had people on who believe climate change is an issue and it's being caused by by humans. Yeah. And we have had people on who believe it isn't or it isn't as big an issue. And I will talk happily talk to both sides and I will question them. And I will also be really honest about my opinion with it. And we care a lot about it. You know, me, Danny, Jeremy, we spend a lot of time planning interviews. You know, what do we want to get out of it? What questions do we want to ask? But most of the time is this like big empathy for there's a wide range of uh, opinions. But what comes with that is uh, if you go into the YouTube comments, it's super interesting because you'll see for almost every interview, uh, a group of people saying, thanks for having this person on. I really appreciate that they're right. And then the other half going, these people are morons. Why are they having you on the show? I'm unsubscribing. And you cannot, you cannot, <laughs> the only way you can make a podcast that pleases the entire audience is if you make it for one audience with one narrow set of beliefs. But if you want to make something for everyone to help people understand different opinions of where they're coming from, you have to have a diverse set of guests. But that that's that itself is problematic. Well, but I just kind of think, why aren't people spending more time trying to understand where people's opinions come from? And there's this great book I talk about all the time. Jonathan the Height wrote The Righteous Mind. And it's a fantastic book for helping people understand this. And I, I wish more people would read that book and spend time Try and understand why people have different opinions. So, so I, I, I think I, I actually do want to talk to you about the climate change because I'm curious, be. not not because I care. Um, I, I, I'm I'm of I'm of the opinion that I don't care about climate change. Okay, <laughs> like, but I am curious as to like your journey, and uh, so I, like I'll interview you in a second. Okay, but uh, but I think that you and I sort of did the same thing under like when when Donald Trump was president. We had a lot of discussions. Yeah, about Donald Trump, and it's it's interesting to me because like. For me, the Donald Trump presidency is a very interesting litmus test for like where people are in the sort of information consumption um, because there's there's just a list, a litany of things that people believe about Donald Trump or about the Republican Party in America uh, that are just ultimately false and like provably false. And it's interesting to hear what people have to say about those things. I've, I've found that most people who were... I guess, highly affected during his presidency have a long laundry list of false beliefs about his presidency. Whereas yeah. I don't care about him, but I care a lot about like what is true. 
And I will take people through those and just ask them like, what is, so what is it that you hate about Donald Trump? And like, well, he told people to drink bleach or he like said this, or he did this. And you're kind of like, okay, so like what, like what, like, explain to me, what, what did he actually say? Well, he said, drink bleach. I was like, okay, so let's go watch the video. Like, oh, he didn't say that. Like, who was he talking to? Oh, he was talking to a scientist. He asked a question. Like, maybe he's dumb, but your initial thought wasn't true, was it? And usually what they'll say is like, well, yeah, but my thought was close enough, right? And it's interesting to me to kind of watch people do this thing where they dismiss, um, dismiss like the evidence itself as it's facing them in the, like put right in front of their face that they believe that their sort of current understanding of things was good enough and that they won't adjust their opinion. I think that's true of most opinions. I don't know why that is though. It's, it's, it's really confusing for me because it comes down to that. We've now got this perfect meme for it. I support the current thing. I oppose yes. the current thing. Yeah. It was brilliant because I support the current thing was badged on me and I was like, oh God, yeah, maybe sometimes I am like that. But I was like, not always. But then the opposite, I oppose the current thing. I was like, oh, well, this is brilliant. It shows that there are two sides that where well, there's a group of people who are immovable on their position. They're really stuck. But actually, I kind of wanted a third one. It's like, I'm not sure on the current thing. I believe a little bit. I believe a little bit. that Where's the nuance on the current thing? And it, I find that really fascinating because that whole I support the current thing, you label that on someone, but actually it might not be true. But you're labeling on that and you're, make, you're forcing them into a corner. And then you're also putting yourself in another team where you, you don't dare step out of that. Right. Well, this is, this is the thing. Like, there, what, what's, what's struck me over the last few years and the way that political discourse has changed is that there is a belief that you have to take a side. Yeah. And, and, and you have to take a side on all things. And, like, I saw this during, like, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. Like if you like ran a company or something like that, you'd, you'd hear about this. Like people would scream at their employers for not taking a position and there was silence is violence and stuff like that. And I was just amazed at this like notion that you can't like you, you, that there is now this idea that everyone has to have an opinion. One opinion is evil, depends on which side you're on as to which opinion it is. One opinion is good, depends on which side you're on as to which opinion it is. And like, you know, this this happens now with everything. Like you have a school shooting. Now we have to talk about gun control in the workplace and like the workplace has to take an anti-gun position, you know, stuff like these are the, the good things, the moral things that are, and it's, it's amazing to me. This has never been the way that society has worked. We've always been able to get along and understand the nuance of like people having different opinions, but it's completely different now. And it seems very much like it changed right around the time Trump became president. Like 2016 is kind of like the new era. And I don't know what caused it. Like the left will say Trump did. Uh, the right will say that it happened under Obama. Like I think Ben Shapiro talks about that, um, that's, that the incivility began under Obama. And, uh, and like I, I don't like saying that the truth is somewhere in the middle because like it might just be both are wrong. <laughs> well, but it can, that, that could be true, true yeah. as well. I mean I think the Ukraine-Russia situation is uh, one of those as well where people have felt the need to take a side when I think actually you can say – both both sides, there's issues, concerning issues on both sides. I mean, uh, Putin himself as a, an invader of a country is concerning. Um, NATO expansion is concerning. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, uh, financing Nazis in East Ukraine is concerning. These are all, I'm not going to get into the, what the truth is of the issues, but they're all things that you can be concerned about, and they span both sides. But what I've noticed is there's certain people who, like, for example, with the, the Nazis in eastern Ukraine, that's all they're talking about. And the biolabs. And the biolabs. 
and but they're not actually mentioned in any of the kind of issues coming from the Russian side. And I think it's important to get through that nuance. It's why I've come off Twitter. I mean, I, I will retweet shows and I will go in and have a look at what's happening. But I, I, it, as a discussion forum, it's miserably failed because there is no reward for truth finding. There is reward for position taking. There's reward for confirmation bias and there's reward for audience capture. There is no reward for nuance. Isn't it? I mean, it's, it's interesting because like when you talk to like an economist, they're going to talk about like the problem set, uh, you know, like, like they'll give you a graph and they'll be like, here are all the elements to this graph and they'll break them down and say these discrete little elements, each of these like parts of it. They, they turn into this graph and this graph tells us this, but these discrete elements of like the math and the study, like these will indicate, like this one indicates how you measure supply. This one indicates how you measure demand. This one indicates like uh, how many cows fart on Tuesday. And like you have, you have these like different sort of like scenarios that they run through and then they come up with this beautiful graph that tells you something. And that's how like generally it used to be. You could, you could have opinions like, okay, well, um, yeah, funding Nazis, not a great thing. Yeah, you know, uh, Russia invading Ukraine, not a great thing. Um, you know, it, it, like, I, I believe both things. Uh, giving guns to the Ukrainians to defend themselves, I I, I like that. Um, Ukraine defending itself, I like that. Like, you can have different opinions within sort of the subset of, like, the greater umbrella of, like, is it good, is it bad? And, like, in Bitcoin, it's interesting because I've seen this weird willingness to just side – the Russia thing is, it blows my mind. Bitcoiners are siding with Russia, like wholeheartedly talking about like the Russian let's, side. Let's, let, let's be fair, not all of them. Correct. Not, they, they, well, they, I mean, I'm a Bitcoiner, right? But so there's there's a cohort that will certainly criticize both sides. There's a cohort that, uh, I, I, the one I find interesting is, is the cohort who are silent on Russia, but but loud on concerning things from the Ukrainian side. So sharing videos maybe that appear to be uh, Russian soldiers being tortured or abused. So they're showing the concern from one side, but silent on the other. I find that super interesting. Well, the thing that I found interesting is the switching of like sort of political positions. Like I'm, I'm watching the left talk about how great it is that the Ukrainians are being given guns which is mind-blowing to me. This is a group of people that doesn't think anyone outside of, like, the military should have guns. And then I'm, I'm watching the right, like, become pro-Putin in America. And it's very weird. I've never, I've never watched such a weird flipping. And it's such a, it's such a flip from their general position. It makes, me, it makes me wonder if, like, in the next thing that happens, the next crisis, because we move from crisis to crisis every two weeks, right? In the next crisis, are they going to flip back like, there's no consistency of opinion. Like, everything is very postmodern at this point. Everyone is kind of like, they have a dartboard and they pick their opinion that week. And then all of them move in a direction. And somehow, like, all of the right has come to come to a place where they all support Putin. All of the left is now, like, pro-guns in the hand of Ukraini Ukrainians. And it's just like this moving, like, marching band. And they just kind of, like, zigzag from, like, I can't figure out where people are anymore I think politically. I, 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 think it, I think I know where it comes from. But just uh, just to add to that. Uh, a funny one. As this show won't come out for a few weeks, but just for uh, context uh, of where we are, uh, yesterday was the Oscars, and there was a rather interesting incident. Uh, I did not have um, Will Smith uh, slapping Chris Rock on stage yeah. uh, on my bingo. No. I did not have that one. But watching how people responded to that was super interesting 
because some of the people who I put in the camp of uh, pointing out mistakes or things that the Ukrainian army maybe have done and silent on or maybe silent or pro-Russia or defending Russia's ideas, also the same people who were saying uh, Will Smith should be arrested for assault. Really? Yeah, I, I saw some of that. Now, what I think is going on here, I think there is a bucket which is considered left, which is globalists, the globalist agenda, mainstream media, uh, Hollywood, etc. And I think if anything feels like it's in that camp, a certain group will oppose it. And anything which is more about being independent away from that, another group support it. So you can say, okay, why would that group support or point out the errors in Ukraine? Because there's that belief that there's a globalist agenda to uh, increase, uh, expand NATO and uh, counsel Russia, right? So they've got to oppose that because they don't want to support the globalists uh, uh, expanding in Ukraine. Uh, and everything that's in Hollywood is left. You, you can't really be a... It's very hard to be an A-list actor and be a conservative because con being a conservative is considered pejorative almost, being a Republican. So they have to oppose someone like Will Smith, whereas I, I, I assume if it had been some kind of like, I don't know... Willie Nelson, maybe he got up and pitched that one. They'd be supporting him. But I think that's where it's coming from. I'd laugh my ass off if Willie Nelson did it. <laughs> I'd laugh my ass off if Willie Nelson did it. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> but, I mean, Do you see what I'm it's, saying? It's interesting, it's interesting that you correlate those two views because like, I, I couldn't even imagine that those, like whether you believe Will Smith was in the right or not in the right or he should go to jail or not go to jail, I, I can't imagine that that would be politically like tied and, and the fact that you you think it is is very interesting not and for it, everyone right. i just i just noticed a few twitter accounts talking about that not these aren't even bitcoiners but these are large twitter accounts saying that and then i went back through their feed and i was just trying to see where their position was on ukraine russia where their position is on covid and and for those individuals there was an alignment well everything is political now yeah and i've discovered that over the years like there were there were things that were just apolitical bitcoin was a somewhat apolitical like you could be a bitcoiner and not know what was going on in the world it was it was fine no one really cared you just kind of like live your bitcoin life your best bitcoin life and i uh, care a lot about like bitcoin stuff but like everything is political now everything and i don't know when that kind of started i mean like jonathan Haidt is i, I agree with you he, he writes he does phenomenal studies what is it the coddling of the american mind yeah. um is probably his most well known and like, it's very interesting that like generationally things have just changed so much. And I wonder where like all of this is going to lead. Um, a lot of the like the, the the political division right now is so polarizing that just you, you can't escape it. It's impossible. Do you think it's a worst issue in the US? Because essentially it's two parties. So there's two teams and there's essentially media, which tends to be pick a team yeah. and therefore in life and the world, you essentially are, or groups of people are pushed into that team. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I've, I was talking to someone about this yesterday and what's been odd to me about what is going on is like, I, I've seen a lot of people cite what is going on as indication that America itself is in decline. And what's been interesting to me is that what I've been watching feels very global. It doesn't feel like it's distinctly American. It feels like conversations about like white privilege and intersectional like stuff is happening in India, in Nigeria and, you know, France and the UK. And that's not to the extent, not really? to the extent here in the US. What, what about Australia? Uh, no, I think it's definitely creeping into like general conversation. Do you, yeah, but do you feel like 
the polarization and the uh, uh, it seems worse here probably but it's like we were talking about the other day like i think the media plays a big role in that like in the uk the media hold politicians to account and i don't That's know true. if that happens the same it is way. it is interesting because like I've, I've heard a number of like i'll hear people in the uk talking in the news or just the news reports generally and and they are much more centrist like sort of centered uh a little bit more fair like in the us the news is aside well, yeah. what they tend to do in the news here just to echo Danny's point because there was a we were watching a news report the other day where um, was it Sky News? Yeah, Sky News. Sky News reporter uh, Richie Sunak, he's the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and she went to interview him. And um, Sky News is traditionally considered more conservative. I'd but, say so. Yeah, and he is the Chancellor for the Conservative Party. She went for him, and she was very clear with him, saying to him, uh, "You're in the process of." regulations and legislation to uh, uh, and sanctions against Russians, Russian individuals and companies. Your wife owns shares in a, I might get this slightly wrong, but shares in a company which has an office in Moscow and they've not yet been sanctioned. You know, um, do you not feel this is like hypocritical? And he defended himself, looked very nervous, but she was hard on him. And that happens a lot in the UK. What I tend to find with US news, it's more based on getting, if it's a right uh, station, it will tend to bring on right guests, and they tend to allow use it more of a platform. Yeah, it, well, I, and and the criticism comes from the critical thing is is critical opinion, not hard hitting questions all the time. It's, it's kind of interesting. Am like, I missing something? No, no, no. News in the United States is an interesting animal because news in the United States has always been very bad since the since the inception of the country. Uh, it's been very propagandistic. It, you know, we've had like, uh, what is it, John Adams passing the Alien and Sedition Act and whatnot. Like, it's always been, it, we've, it's been a little, it's, it's been a little bit like political. And then we had this sort of like golden era where TV happened and we had like the 60 Minutes and stuff like that where they like had, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 years of really good news or what they believed to be did, really good did news. Did you have the fairness doctrine though? Yes. Was that good or bad? It depends. Uh, William F. Buckley. Well, the National Review, I believe, used the fairness doctrine, for example, to insist that people uh, are taught in schools that Shakespeare was not the author of Shakespeare's works. So that's <laughs> just one of my favorite use. I mean, the, the fairness doctrine is, is, an, is an interesting uh, era in American history because it seems to violate a lot of like sort of our constitutional precepts. I actually think that what's happened recently is that there's been sort of this opening of of the Ameri the opening of the American mind, where like Americans have indicated that they actually do want good good journalism, and what's happened is because of the internet and podcasting, there's opened up this entire realm of possibility for people that actually show up and do real news. So, I mean, I hate, you can say what you want about him, but Joe Rogan, like interviewing people for three hours, having a real conversation, that's real news. Mm -hmm. um, news is taking on a different form and people aren't watching that drivel because they don't want it. They don't want the 30 second snippets. That's for old people. You but, know? There, but there is a new form of drivel that comes with that as well. Those who are, you know, those who are captured by their audience. I, I think yeah, Tim Paul to me is the opposite of Rogan. He is just a independent version of a Fox News, right? He, 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 you know, he has his show, but I think he completely appeals to his audience. Whereas Rogan, I believe is a truth seeker. 
it's it's an well, I think they would both believe themselves to be truth seekers. I mean, Tim Pool's interesting. I, I watch both. I mean, I watch Rogan, I watch Tim Pool. I try to get like I try to watch as much as I can just because like I feel like you know you get as much information. Yeah. And and it has been interesting to watch Tim Pool move down this like rabbit hole where like he started out pretty good and then like you know as as I watch people move move in a direction, it seems like everyone ends up in conspiracy rabbit holes. Everybody. And I don't know how you prevent it. Well, it, it, I mean, I understand that. I understand the draw. And it, it, I think there's a couple of reasons what that exists. There is an incentive model for it. Because firstly, you do question things, but you have an audience, therefore, likes the fact you're questioning that. And then you get captured by, by that. And even so you Rogan, think it's like a, a sort of a cyclical, like... It, it's the same. They have the same revenue model, essentially, usually as the mainstream media. Every, everything degrades to rhetoric. Like that, that's that's been kind of my observation of all discussion. So like let, like we should talk a little bit about the climate change stuff. That's interesting. Well, cause, because uh, sorry, the point I was making is I feel personally feel that draw. Interesting. I, I know if I was I, if I had a very different set of beliefs. If I was uh, if I was more libertarian. If I was uh, didn't believe that climate change was a human issue. If I was uh, uh, if I thought uh, the majority of COVID was a conspiracy. I know all the guests I can get, and I I can feel myself getting drawn into it. This is why we always try and get people on we disagree with to try and balance us, to try and level us. Because if you don't, you just get sucked down and down and down. I I think it's again like the the global warming one is an interesting conversation because the only thing that happens is rhetoric on both sides. And it's very interesting to me that like people that are unable to evaluate truth of a certain thing, like nowadays you have to have like a very strong opinion, you know, and th this was a thing like at the beginning of COVID, everyone was now an epidemiologist. Everyone is a virologist. Everybody was, you know, now everyone's a supply chain expert and like an, a gas expert, like the, uh, the right, Joe, Joe Biden is responsible for gas prices. The left, oh, the president doesn't actually have the ability to like affect the gas prices. The right, well, the nor like the first day he was in office, he shut down uh, the pipeline, uh, and that caused speculators to go and uh, you know bid the price up, and that's what caused this to happen. Well, you know, the other things have been left. The other things have been uh, effective in like increasing the price. Like for example, now we have the Russian Ukraine. Oh, you're going to tell me the Russian Ukraine? You know, this is like I can do the debate left, right, left, right. It's so it's so fucking terrible that like everything is completely completely like boiled down to like this rhetorical flourish at this point where there's literally no way to have an argument with someone that's actually competent because it just back even even experts do this it's just back and forth with like talking points and i think that like we, there's a destruction of dialectic in a world where everybody has the talking points that they're supposed to say and nobody is capable of describing like the nuance of the history of something like a, a good example in ukraine like having a discussion about like whether the azov battalion who are the nazis is good or bad like okay like we can talk about like what the azov battalion is and they're nazis okay fine like talking about the history of nazism in ukraine is something i've yet to hear discussed or talked about it's very different than like nazism in germany or Nazism in America or whatever. Like these are very like nuanced discussions that require like a level of expertise for people to like get into. And people just have an opinion, Nazi bad, why give money? You know, it's a very, it's a very like difficult 
sort of discussion to have. And it's amazing to me that we can't like, I don't know, the era of Hitchens in some ways is dead where like he says original things that are interesting and provocative. You can't have a provocative opinion. Either opinion falls into this, like the right slot or the left slot. And I just find that very I think like, you can stultifying. Have, I think you can have provocative opinions. There are a lot of provocative opinions out there. I think actually there, I go back to your point just there. There's not enough nuanced opinions. That That's what we're missing. People who are willing to try and navigate through a complicated situation and say, I see this and I see that. And it's almost like, it's almost like when there's a fight between your kids. Yeah. Your kids start having a fight. It's never usually one that's in the wrong. Usually there's an, an escalation of a situation mm -hmm. and neither backs down and they both do bad shit and they end up fighting. And you, you, usually like both kids want you to blame one or the other, but they did this, but they did that. And, and you don't just, because usually it's both and of them. kids have very dumb reasons for yeah. escalation. <laughs> and, 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 and people want to have a, like a very simple answer to what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. It's because of NATO expansion. It's because of it's, and actually, what you can do is when you actually start to navigate the nuance. Yeah, and we've done some you know, research. We've spoken to people. We had Scott Horton. And what it comes down to me is, it's like it's two sides. And there's two lots of things that happened, and there's lots of bad things that have happened from both sides that has escalated to a war. That, that to me is the situation we're in. Lots of bad decisions have got us to this point from multiple people in a very complicated situation. And, and, and the level the level of like understanding that most people have, and frankly, this, this should probably be where their opinion stops, is Putin decided to invade. Yes. Putin invaded. Putin, or Ukraine fought back. Putin is now confused. And that, that like is, is the level of like nuance that most people actually have. And like I'm watching these like four hour discussions in places like Clubhouse where people are talking about it. And that's as much, that's almost, that's literally as much information as they have. But like that's, that's been the, the thing with like all topics in the last probably 10 years, uh, I don't know, seven years that we've really seen this. Like everyone falls into these buckets where they have absolutely no knowledge about something and they, they still have an opinion about it. Like I, I'm very curious, like where did you start off about like global warming? When you uh, got here, so um, it's always been something I've been aware of, and it's always something I thought was an issue because it was a it's been an issue that you've been aware of since you were a kid. So starting with ozone, the ozone layer, etc., the Amazon, and the Amazon, and, and you've always been aware of it. And I would say, if you'd have asked me two to three years ago, I would say climate change is a huge issue. We need to deal with it now. Now I'm in a very different position. Uh, I still be I believe the climate is changing and accelerating because of humans. I still believe that. What, I, what I've got in my armory now is what I don't know. Okay, What I don't know is how serious it is and when it will get super serious, if it will get super serious. I don't know that. I also don't know whether you can do anything about it. Like if any attempt to decarbonize the world can actually be done and what is the net impact of that is actually is that super disastrous and if you can't do that how do you mitigate against it so i'm now in a position where i still believe us as humans are changing the climate i believe there is a risk to future generations i don't know which and i also believe there are geographic risks whereby so a great example of this is uh when people say well we have the technology to defend ourselves against you know rising seas and blah 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 it's like yeah you do in the u.s because you're a rich nation but if you're in um Ethiopia and you're a coffee producer and uh, you have to move up into higher lands there's a cost to do that you might not be able to do that and you might lose 30 to 40 percent of your crop and that is a that is the, there is one weather system 
but there is not one economy. There are separate economies, and and it's it's pretty well known and understood that if if which I believe it is, but if climate change does impact humans, it will affect the poorest nations worse, and they'll have the least uh, economic armory to defend themselves. So it's like a super nuanced position, and and what I'm trying to now understand is like what can be done, how should it be done, and who should be doing it. <laughs> right. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, questions too about like how much how much unarable land will become arable, like in Siberia, as it happens, and how much uh, economic growth is going to happen because like the world gets warmer. How many people die under cold temperatures rather than warm temperatures? Like to me, that it's a very sort of interesting discussion that scientists are having, and everything about it has become political again, of course. just like everything, and uh, and you know people like, but I believe the macro discussions without the micro discussions are the most uh dishonest ones because when somebody talks about well okay you might have land in siberia that green they say greenify they call it that i can't remember i don't know but anyway you've got these traditionally cold areas that might become arable land okay fine that's a maybe a geographic benefit to the people who live there but what about the people in ethiopia Ethiopia? this this isn't this isn't made up. This is happening now. Like the evidence is out there. Crops are struggling and they are having to move to, they have to move their farm into higher lands. There is an impact on people. So how do, how do we figure that out? Like what is the fair thing? Or is it just like, well, that's how it is. So, so the idea is like if, if you, if in fact. Can you dig that one up, Debbie? Yeah, so, so essentially if, if in fact there's nothing that can be done about it, like it's going to happen then all of a sudden you have to deal with the consequences more than you have to deal with the question of how do we stop it. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, 
Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Also today, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Well, actually, there's two points to it. There is that. But also, one of the defenses is that we now have the means and the technology to prevent ourselves. We can build sea defenses. We can, you know, we we have technology to change uh, or protect ourselves from weather events. We could have the technology to change farming. But but that's all, always, I think, stated from a Western, rich liberal democracy position. I'm on about a country where five percent of, I think, five percent of the either the population or the GDP comes from coffee production. That's just one thing. And what about what's going to happen to those people? What happens with uh, climate migration? Look at that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the this is the case with everything, though. Like the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is real. Hold on. In parts of Ethiopia, spring and summer rains have already declined by 15 to 20 percent since the 70s. Da-da-da. Ethiopia could lose 39 percent to 59 percent of its current coffee growing areas to climate change. Now, the, the tricky thing with that is if they don't lose within that range, I'm right. going to be like, oh, well, it's all bullshit. <laughs> okay. I mean, models are models. But but it, it's ju- this is just one example. If you can go, you can see studies on other countries it will impact. Well, this is this is the, the sort of the theory, like the tipping point theory, that there is a yeah. point where like, you know, it, like the Amazon, like you can have this much carbon, this much carbon, this much. And then at this point, all of a sudden now you're on a 20-year like inevitable decline to like des- desertification of the land, right? So like – there's there's a lot of theories that are like being tested and a lot of them are pretty disastrous if they turn out to be true. And I find that to be very interesting. There there is I think like you're experiencing this. There is a Dun- Dunning-Kruger effect is real, right? There's like you know, I, I see this in Bitcoin all the time. People show up. It's the meme, right? Yeah. I just showed up to Bitcoin. I just heard about Bitcoin. I'm here to fix it. Um and that's a like it's a very true reality i just i just heard about climate change i'm here to fix it you know that's like uh the alexandria ocasio-cortez thing <laughs> like i'm here to fix it hey i've like, done i've done it yeah but we all do it like it's very difficult to know when you're when you don't know enough to have an opinion it's impossible actually because like the only like you show up to something someone tells you it's very important i mean this goes back to the beginning of like uh the libertarian stuff like when you first hear the theory like you feel like you know enough to go out and like try to change the world and you just don't 
you don't know enough about the subject. And like, that's true of everything, almost everything, particularly like very nuanced discussions, which science in particular is a highly nuanced like category of things. And, uh, and many of these things that like people walk down the conspiracy roads toward, they're also very nuanced, which is why we never actually get clear answers on them. Like was, was COVID released from a lab, right? Uh, maybe the answer is really actually a very difficult one to like conclude and actually know for sure. Maybe we'll never have an actual answer on that. Maybe like we'll only have like, you know, 10% certainty on any of these questions about like anything like, was it, was it from a pangolin? I don't know. Like maybe we'll never know who the, who, you know, how, how can you possibly like ultimately know many of these answers? And the, the reason is because like science itself is like struggling and trying to find the answers to these. And they're trying to find as definitive an answer as they can, but like there's debate and you'll be able to find like articles on both sides of the debate. That's everything from like raising children to like science to everything. Well, and there are predictions that come wrong. Yeah. And there are predictions that come right. Yeah. And depending on which side of the fence you on, you tend to latch onto the one that suits where your position was. Interesting, this is, this is the thing with like government corruption. You see the same thing. Like people assert things all the time. Like Joe Biden's son is in, you know, has a business in Ukraine and that's why blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, I have, I have friends who strongly believe that um, the prosecutor that Joe Biden uh, said that needed to be fired, they strongly believe that he did not have any investigations open on uh, on Burisma, right? So for those, you know, looking at American politics, we're talking about like the scandal that happened with Joe Biden and like Hunter Biden, his son being on the board of like a Russian energy company, right? So Ukrainian energy company, uh, you're sorry, Ukrainian energy yeah. company, Burisma. And, uh, so, so I have, I have friends who will tell you that he did not have any, uh, any cases open on Burisma, the, the prosecutor in the Ukraine. And, I have other friends who will tell you that the evidence, like Matt Taibbi, I think does a bunch of articles on how like he did have open uh, investigations into Prisma, and they they have different forms of evidence to show that like these investigations did or did not actually were were or were not actually open, and there's just no conclusion. Like mm -hmm. there's no way to like know which side is actually correct, which is weird because you'd think that it would be obvious on a question like that which side is correct, and it's just not. It is weird. You know what else is weird? The laptop. That is weird. Oh, the laptop's super weird. <laughs> the laptop is super fucking weird. But you can look at that. Like, you can look at it and be like, oh, this whole thing is really weird. I bet something is going to happen here. And you don't have to have, like, a strong opinion on what that something is. Like, I think that's where it comes out. Like, people have very specific opinions about, like, where this information is going to go, how it's going to conclude, how it's going to end, and, like, where the corruption actually is. But you can see where the conspiracies start, how they form, because it's like, okay, there's this laptop. Okay, it's Russian propaganda. It's signed by fifty what agents signed it like a letter, and Joe Biden ends up winning the election, and Trump is out. Trump they wanted to get rid of. You can yeah. see how the conspiracies form, and I have a lot of empathy for the, that conspiracy. Is it even a conspiracy? Is it just fucking fact that they wanted to get rid of him, and they there's groups of people who did what they had to do? I don't know. I don't know. I find it all troubling. I find it supremely troubling. The, the thing I find most troubling about the current cycle is that we are moved from crisis to crisis, week to week. Yeah. And it's very deliberate. And you that's like so. my big conspiracy. Yeah, it seems that, like you saw this during COVID, like during COVID, the news was talking every week about how everyone's going to die constantly. Yeah. And then like Black Lives Matter happened and COVID dropped off the news for two months and they were going outside, they were protesting. We just, there was no discussion about it. And then 
after that, we're back to COVID and how it's going to kill everybody constantly. And people were like seamless in the ability to make the transition between all of these types of news stories and seamless to go right back. It was as if it like hadn't disappeared. And it was as if it hadn't like there hadn't been this like time gap for a couple of months. And that to me is very worrying that like we are able to sustain crisis week after week after week after week. And it just keeps everyone on edge. It keeps the adrenaline flowing. It's just like it's this like completely screwed up way for minds to work. Like it's, it's like a drug. It is a drug. And I have this like, I have this feeling that we're going to find out that this moving from crisis to crisis is probably this like dopamine fix that everyone's on. If, if we didn't have that, the whole society would be depressed because I don't think people know how much dopamine is being dumped every couple weeks into their brain as a result of like the newest crisis. But why is this happening? Is this, do you think this is media driven and it's clickbait and media needs big stories because they need eyeballs and social media needs eyeballs. Like, is, is it all just, is it just organically become that way because of the incentive systems of like of media or is there, is there an agenda that somebody has to keep us like this? Like, it, like individual groups, is there a political agenda for this? Like, I'm trying to understand why this is happening. Yeah. I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And, and it, it feels very planned but it also feels very organic. It's, yeah. it's, it feels both ways. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I mean, like the idea that like, I don't know, uh, Klaus Schwab is in the, the the World Economic Foundation's headquarters and like sending a fax to uh, to like the head of CNN or like NBC and being like, okay, it's time to, you know, uh, report on this. Uh, that's a Russian accent for Klaus Schwab. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it sounds I, I, evil. It, it, it sounds so evil. I don't think that's actually happening. And I, I like I can't conceive of a world where this is like literally, I don't know, the Democratic National Convention or like a national committee or like the Republican National Committee literally sending directions to like news agencies. It doesn't seem that like that that would be a fees like that would leak, I would think. And it's it's a very weird world to me when you have these like, you know, the, the crisis, they all, they move in unison from crisis to crisis to crisis. And I do think it actually is organic. I think, it, I, I, th I think it's organic. I, th I think that what you're seeing is like the internal, like if you have 50 people together in a national news organization and they all vote on like what the next story they're going to cover is, for some reason, 50 out of 50 times or 49 out of 50 times, all of the organizations are going to pick the same story. They'll, they'll slowly converge on the same story regardless because like one company is doing it and it, it feels very organic, but it is literally crisis to crisis. And it is like almost exactly every two or three weeks. Yeah. I mean, it just, it might be an, an, an anomaly for the period. I mean, look, when COVID happened, we covered it. We discussed it. When, uh, Ukraine, Russia happens. We've discussed it. We've covered it. We're a Bitcoin show yeah. and the Bitcoin connection exists, but it's a loose connection, but we feel like oh, we need to cover it because we essentially have a news property. So we definitely are, if it's organic, I see it because we don't have some weird agenda. Right. We are just producing content that uh -huh. we think is important to our listeners to cover it with the right guests that our listeners like or will challenge our listeners. But it's it's organic. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's very clearly organic in a lot of ways. And I don't, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which ways, it, if it is, it, it's planned, like just intellectually, like thinking through how it could be. And I just don't see it. It just seems very... It's a shadowy organization. You sit around a big table. That's what, I mean, that's, again, this, this goes back to like, like the original uh, talking point about like libertarianism. Like to me, conspiracy is very easy when like the organization that things are cast on is this like sort of black box 
The Fed's a great example. You don't know what happens there on a daily basis. You don't know what happens in like the CDC. You don't know what happens in the Wuhan lab. Like every every conspiracy, every good conspiracy has a black box that you can cast aspersions at. And it, that really kind of blows my mind that there are this many black boxes that we can like focus on and like have like just sort of a trash can of like what's going on there. Just, just invent it. Doesn't matter. And that's where like a lot of the, like I think you're right. I think there is this tendency to like, like you can see how people walk down that hole, but I think the black box problem absolutely exists where like you have these like black boxes within the conspiracies that you can make it, make them into anything. And that really worries me. Like, I, I don't know where we're going to go in the future here with all of these. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, we had four, there were four channels on TV, uh, BBC one, BBC two, ITV and channel four. Right. And the news was something my dad would watch at six o'clock. Right. Just after dinner. And we'd all sit in silence. I won't go in the room to distract him. And maybe he'd read a newspaper in the morning, but that was it. And then we got Sky, and then we got 24-hour news, and now we have the internet, and we have constant news. We have a constant news feed drip, and then added to that, we've given everyone a platform to have an opinion on it. Well, it used to to be nightly news here, too. Like You'd you'd have your local news, and now like CNN changed all that. And I I think even during college, I was kind of unaware of how it was going to change things, because like during college, it was still, like, CNN would literally grab packages from, like, local news stations and run them. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have enough content. Um, I used to fall asleep to it. And I remember like, as I would sleep, I'd wake up to the same story again and again, because they would just put them on cycles, right? They would just play the same content again yeah. and again. At BBC night. World News does that. Yeah. And, and now they literally have enough content that they're like 24 hours a day and just news, 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 just constant. Well, we're plugging this news into everyone. Mm-hmm. We're giving them an ability to have an opinion on it, and they may be heard, and they may suddenly get popular because of their opinion on it, which is gamed in a way that it isn't uh, allowing people to find truth. It's so, gamed in a way for for taking a side. Do you think? Do you, do you not think the podcasts are becoming a remedy to much of this? Because I, I do. Depends on the podcast, but yes. So you, you, I, I've heard you say it before, but like you seem to have like a, a bit of a like like Tim Pool's kind of irked you a little bit. So what, what yeah. is it that you like, like or dislike about him? So when I first discovered him, it was through his films. Uh, I saw him, saw him make some interesting films. Uh, I think he did one in Chernobyl. I think he visited Chernobyl. He did. Or not, I don't think it was Chernobyl. I think he did the Japanese reactor. I thought he did Chernobyl. He might have been. He might have Daniel been Chernobyl. Look it up. He did another one in Sweden talking about the... Um, Rising uh, crime. Yeah, because yeah. of uh, um, the, migration. The no go, yeah, the no-go yeah, zones. No-go no zones. But I thought it was kind of interesting, but I also felt he was like someone with empathy. And I thought, okay, this is cool. This is interesting. And then, uh, so he, I think he made like 10 films. And then his YouTube channel became more of a daily opinion on what's going on. And I think he, um, he used to say he was a liberal. He was like a... He still says that. I think he said he's like... Uh, I can't remember what you said. But anyway, so then that happened. And then he started doing these daily clips. And I, I saw a shift to the right. But that's fine. I mean, I've had a shift to the right in times of my life. And some of the things he was concerned about was great. Uh, but then following his Twitter, I, I've just found him just, it's just like, uh, just I don't look at him as someone who says, here are some problems in society. I want to talk about this. And I want to talk to these people and bring them together. And here, let's find a solution. Let's see how we can work together. I see somebody who sees a crisis and just uses sarcasm and attack and criticism uh, to appeal to an audience, gets his likes, his cheers, his retweets, grows his show, yada, yada. And so I'm not a fan of that type of picking aside and attack people thing. By the way, everything I ever say, I may have done hypocritically. I know that. 
But I'm really mostly interested in somebody who can go, okay, here's a problem. I want to try and find the truth. I want to try and find the answer. I want to help people get to a place where they understand what's going on and they can work together for a solution. And I feel like he's so far lost from that. I, th I also think he just spouts a lot of fucking bullshit. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's you know, they talk, he talks even about the Gelman amnesia effect where you like open up the newspaper and you're like, oh, like here's the thing I know a lot about. You read it and then you're like, oh my God, they're completely wrong about everything. And then you move to the next page and then you read about another complex thing and like you just accept it as truth because it's something you know nothing about. And I, I see that because like whenever he talks about crypto, it's just cringy. <laughs> it's so cringy. 51% attack. Oh yeah, his discussion on 51% attacks or when Doge was increasing, he had a whole thesis on how Doge was going to become real money and Bitcoin was going to be savings. And like that was just complete like doggy doo-doo. It was very obvious to anybody who's in the space that like like his understanding of crypto is very minimal. Did you find it? Yeah, it was Fukushima. It was Fukushima. Oh, bam. Okay, damn. But I, I knew he'd done one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. He, but but the point is these films are brilliant. Like they're really good independent films. And, and I was a big fan a big fan and I, I see a different temple now and I'm just not a fan and that's fine. Like he can do his own thing, but I'm just not into that. Like I openly admit I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan. Like I've clearly with some of what our work done, it's been inspired by him because whether I agree with him or not, and I disagree, I believe that somebody's going out there. He's trying to help people find the truth, yeah. trying to help people question things. And it's very hard to pin him to subjects. What, what I like about like a Tim Pool or a Rogan generally is the long form conversation. I agree. And like there's, for example, in the United States, we have a couple of congressmen who are a little bit nuts, we think. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably the most famous example. You know, I've never really heard her talk as a person for long, long periods of time. I only have like this understanding of her as like a person who's a crazy, who believes that like, you know, there's lasers from satellites uh, put up there by the Jews who are burning down forests, right? That's, that's as much as I like know about her. And Tim Pool had her on and did like a three-hour conversation. And it was like the first time I'd ever heard her as a person. And I was like, oh, she's just your like friend's mom. She's just a little bit like uninformed. And she didn't know how Congress worked and then got elected and, uh, and has kind of learned things. But she's like not crazy. She's just kind of like your friend's mom, <laughs> like, like when you're growing up and your friend's mom, had like weird opinions and you're like, oh, she's just kind of a normal person. Like I could see how like a person like that could like end up in Congress and be a little bit and then not like know how to play the politics and then get accused of all of these things that she probably has also said and has kind of walked down some of the QAnon stuff. But like she's not like malicious in any way and she's not dangerous. And like that was something I got to see because of the long form conversation, regardless of like any of the political views that were, you know, espoused during that entire conversation. And that's the same thing with Rogan. I just like the long form conversation. Yeah. It gives me an opportunity to sort of like get to know a person freely and, and measure how crazy they are. Cause there's a lot of nutters out there. Like how long, how long can you go without like being a nut? <laughs> it's like, it's very, you can only hide it for so long. I just want to say on the temple thing is like, um, I, th I think he does a really great job a lot of the time. And I understand why a lot of people like his show and it's just something I would want myself personally to avoid going down that route um it's really hard yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard i mean it, it is it is absurd to me how i mean like I, I said earlier about the like going down conspiracies i've noticed this about like the russia ukraine thing has sort of alighted me to this in a way that is surprising where i've watched people who have been sort of really good 
about not falling into conspiracy rabbit holes, falling into them on this issue. And, and I wonder now if they're stuck, is that where they are? Or will the next issue be okay again? I think people are stuck. I think you're right. I think, I think you get stuck. No, we fight really hard against that here. Like this is why Danny's so important to the show. This is why he now has a microphone. This is why he travels with me. He's the real conscience of the show. Jeremy as well. Um, the chimney cricket. <laughs> no, but they, but they really are because it is easy to get sucked into this. And it's not to say people aren't right or wrong, but it's it's really important to just try and for every single thing take a step back because I I fall for it like I do and I jump to answers and I jump to opinions. And sometimes I haven't really thought it through or spent the time on it. So it's interesting because like I look back on my own sort of and I, I try to figure out which which conspiracies in the last few years I have either become passionate about or fallen for. Um, I think the one that really got me was hydroxychloroquine. I think that one, I think I fell for that one. I'll admit that. How do you mean? Well, I, I, I fully embraced the hydroxychloroquine train. Like this thing, this is working. The, you know, like it's very clearly working. There's clinical studies now, blah, blah, blah. And then as time went on, like you ended up with these meta studies and you took a look at it. It was like, oh, this really doesn't work. It's just kind of like, it works sometimes. It's kind of, it's effective sometimes maybe, but like, honestly, it's just kind of like, there's better medicines. Like it's not really that great. I think COVID has been just a huge challenge for, mm-hmm. for everyone. But, but I think I did a pretty good job of avoiding most of them. But that one was, that one was one that was interesting to me. And I, I've noticed that while I can admit that and I can, I can, uh, I can figure out which conspiracy I've fallen for, it seems like people get stuck. They really do get rutted into a specific path of thinking. And it's very difficult to like escape from that because it's, it's almost like every path of thinking is a pathway into like a community. Well, there's an inertia to admitting they're, you were wrong. Yes. Yeah. People don't want to admit they're wrong. Yeah. Well, I think, I think also because there's now this moral imperative to be right. So if you believed in hydroxychloroquine you, as, as an effective means to like curing COVID, you were evil for like two months. So people remember that. And if you admit that you're wrong, that means that you were evil for two months. You're, you're kind of admitting that. And uh, meanwhile, there's was, there was, I mean, there was all sorts of conspiracies that the left fell into and the right fell into. That was the one that I got, that got me. Every other one, pretty much been pretty good on during COVID, but that was the one that got me. And like everyone else that that got seemed to fall down the rabbit hole of like vaccines are bad and you know, this is bad. And like, you know, the government is lying and why are we doing, you know, masks, whatever, um, whatever your opinion is on masks. Like. Well, also, if you admit you're wrong, some people don't trust you in the future. Again, it's another thing we see. So uh, uh, when the lockdowns were first announced, I was like, yeah, totally support this. Very publicly, I said. I did the same, actually. I was I was on the same side as you. I was like, it's 14 days. Yeah. Let's give it a try. I totally support this. Like, lock us down. There are people collapsing in China and dying. We don't know how bad this could be yeah. the plague. Yeah. Like, I support this. Yeah. I'm, I'm with it. Black and, death could be coming. And a lot of people were like, this is bullshit. And I was like, no. And I fully supported it. Then, you know, in hindsight, we've seen the studies. We know lockdowns are ineffective. And they also have these secondary, like secondary effects, which are terrible for people, mental health, alcohol abuse, you know, companies, et cetera. Uh, I've, I've admitted I was wrong multiple times. But people have come back and said, well, you've been wrong on so many issues before. Why should we trust you now? And it's just kind of, a, well, hold on a second. Have you been right about everything your entire life? Have you had, not that you've had to, because I don't have to, 
have you said your things in a public forum where half a million people is, are watching? Is the difference between people that fall down conspiracy rabbit holes and people that don't the fact that they can admit they're wrong after the fact? Um, I think it's a, I think it's a factor. I certainly think it's a factor because it, it it's very difficult to come out and say you're wrong. Like it really is hard. It seems very easy. Like I, I don't. I, I don't, find it easy, but for a lot of people, that they yeah, I, I don't understand that. Like I, I mean, like this is like at the beginning of COVID. Uh, this was my debate with like people I knew. I was like, look, this is early, early on before they said anything about masks. I went and bought a bunch of masks. And I was, I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, to my wife, we're going to go to the store. We're going to wear our masks. This is before anybody else is doing it. And the pushback I get is, uh, well, no one else is doing it. They're going to look at us, right? And, you know, a few months later, everyone's wearing masks. And, you know, it's pure capitulation. It's like, oh, yeah, absolutely, we'll wear, we'll, we'll wear a mask. And, you know, again, regardless of what you think of masks, like early on, this was the most conservative way that you could go with with regard to like a pandemic like okay do everything is you know stay away from people we're going to go in there quick we're going to get out all of that and and like I, I just noticed that there was this like sort of need for like affirmation from the crowd before you did anything at all especially if it looked weird and that's uh, that to me is very interesting that like you know it took months and there was never this admission like oh I was wrong about the mask thing it was just it's just kind of like a go along to get along with the crowd and like once the crowd says the masks are okay then we can wear masks if the crowd doesn't say that the masks are okay then we don't wear masks because people will make fun of us it's very weird well, well I think you, you had that when so when um, sort of the first lockdowns happened you went into London to record with some homeless people yeah and you weren't wearing a mask and yeah. you put a screenshot on Twitter and you got so much shit for the bit from the Bitcoiners for not wearing a mask yeah and so the setup but isn't that interesting <clears throat> yeah that there was like people don't remember this when 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 the left started saying you needed to wear a mask I was telling you, I was like do you remember two months ago when the right said that and you guys were telling them that they were anti-science idiots mm -hmm. and now the left is saying that you have to wear a mask and if you don't you're an anti-science idiot while the right just instantly flipped and was like no no we're not wearing masks so that's that was that's a really interesting point so the, the context of that was the lockdown got announced and there was one day before the lockdown and the immediate thing on my mind is like what happens to homeless people in the lockdown interesting because Firstly, they rely on begging. If there's nobody around, they might not have that access to that money. What's happening to the overnight facilities? So I was like, I'm going to go down to London. I'm going to take my camera. I'm just going to ask some people. And we were very careful with how we did it. So each person we spoke, because I didn't have a mask on me. Okay, each person I spoke to, I said, look, I don't have a mask. I'm going to keep this much distance between you, yada, yada. And um, my son was with me and he took some photos of the whole thing. And there was this photo of me interviewing someone. As so I was like, right, I'm going to put that out there. Let people know there's a video coming. So you see me and you see the person, you see the gap and I'm not wearing a mask. And they went for me hard, like so hard. We didn't even release the videos in there, no, did we? Because I was like, I, I, I want the message to Pussy. be about, well, I wanted to be the message to be about what, I mean, the videos didn't turn out great anyway, nah, but I, I wanted that. the message to be about, this is the difficulty that, that people are facing. So you're trying to do real reporting is yeah. what you were doing. So trying to do some real reporting. I thought if everyone's just going to focus on the mask thing, it, it avoids the message. But that was from a, a cohort of hardcore Bitcoiners having a pop at me. But going to your point, what, what I think is going on is I think this may be where people attribute the value in their cohort. Is it a social media cohort? And I think that's one of the things that happens. I think it's really hard to change your mind. Imagine you're in a, a cohort who will comment and go to groups and go in spaces together where you're on maybe that conspiracy side. Uh, 
And maybe that's a lot of people are like, we're not going to get jabbed, the vaccines, poison, yada, yada. I wonder if there's, a people, I wonder if there's been people in there who have been vaccinated, but they won't admit it. And they, they literally repeat the, uh, the rhetoric. It'd be interesting to know that because they're nervous about admitting that. What if they've changed their mind on one? How do you come out to a, you know, a cohort of a few thousand people and say, you know, what, well, I think I was wrong on this? I think also what's interesting is that there's this need to oppose and this need to support rather than like actually finding answers. So if you look at like the research on the pandemic, the real solution is actually very simple. It's airflow. It's airflow in buildings. It's fixing the way that air is filtrated uh, in buildings. It's fixing the way that, you know, air moves in buildings, making sure that like, you know, filtrate. It's very boring, super boring. But that's the answer. And like th this notion of like opposition to wrong science, which is what the right has, like the left believes in a bunch of crap science often. The right believes that they know what the science is and they're just being like, you're wrong. That's not the science. That's not, but there's never solutions on that side where they're like, oh, you know what? The actual science says that like air filtration is the way to solve this. That like, you know, I, I guess uh, put up, put masks, if you will, on buildings rather than on people would be like a better solution. That's never actually proposed or discussed, right? You have just this like sort of antithesis of the other side, which might be like, more conservative in their goal. Like we have to wear masks. Like, okay, masks don't work. Well, okay. The studies do kind of show that masks don't work, but they show that like air filtration does, which is actually the same thing as a mask, but it's a mask for like the room. So they're not wrong, but they're not right. And you're definitely not proposing a solution to the problem. You're just saying, let's keep the status quo for no reason other than that you want to oppose what they're saying. It's not just a problem for the individual though. This, this ability to change your mind or admit you are wrong that exists within media and that exists within government as well. I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't envy the difficult decisions that certain politicians have had to make. Whatever your feeling on politicians are, if you're responsible, if you're an elected politician, you have a, a constituents to represent and you have to make decisions. And public health policy is one of them. And we had a pandemic. Outside of the decisions that are made, there are tough... Plandemic. Plandemic. <laughs> there, are, there are tough decisions that had to be made. And some of them were clearly wrong. But you very rarely get a politician came out and say, you know what, we were totally wrong on the lockdown or we were wrong on masks yeah. or we were wrong, we, you know, we were wrong on this, we've learned, we're moving on. Everybody seems to, and every, well, not everybody, but lots of people in lots of situations, whether it's an individual, a media person, a politician, just doubles down or buries it. Do you know what else I noticed, which was interesting, something I didn't know, was the difference between sort of the administrative state and the difference between like... Uh, people who are like actual maybe scientists, right? Mm -hmm. There's two different types of state. There's there's political appointees, uh, sort of like elected, if you will, by like Congress. And then there's the people that are there because they're they're like not just sort of administrative functionaries. They're there to do specific work. So like if you go to the CDC website, they mm -hmm. have a whole section, a whole section on air in buildings and how to solve for air problems. And the reason like the, the air filtration stuff worked in like tuberculosis and other pandemics that we've experienced. But like, there's a whole section on the CDC website. Meanwhile, you have these, these administrative functionaries going out and talking about like the importance of masking and like giving the completely wrong message to the American public about like what it is that the science actually shows is really effective. And it's because it was like politic, it was the political hot button. And that's really interesting to me that they will do that at the expense of actually saving people. They will, they will give you the line, the political hot button line, rather than telling you what the actual solution is. 
If everyone in America had bought two 24, you know, 24 inch by 24 inch box fans, stuck a MERV 13 filter on the back and ran them in every room, this thing would have been like very different. But nobody did that. And that's all that you needed. It was like a $50 solution. Is that definitely the answer? If you had done that in every, in every space, it would have, I mean, like just, yeah, it really is the answer. <laughs> like if you'd done that in every space, you would have had a huge reduction in transmission. Like you have to- A reduction, but you still would have had transmission. Yeah, you would have had transmission. Like you can't, you can't get rid of a pandemic. Yeah. It's going to happen. But the goal is to mitigate it as much as possible. And you could have mitigated it with like very, very cheap fixes with air filtration in rooms. And nobody did this because it was not, it never came up as the, it was never popular politically. It was, it's amazing. I'd have to, I'd have to double check that one myself. But, but I agree with that. I think there are other things like protecting the vulnerable and not locking down yes. the people who can go out and, and create economic growth. Um, some of the weird, I mean, the weirdest rule of everything is masks on planes when you're allowed to eat and drink. It's, it's ludicrous beyond belief that you can get on a plane and they tell you to wear your mask, but they'll serve you a drink and then you can take it off. It's just fucking ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense to anyone with even a quarter of a brain. Everyone knows that's bullshit. And, and, and that's why I think there's a lot of really tricky things with this. But like, how do you deal it with the next time? So, so the, air, the airplane thing is really interesting because uh, it's, it, it actually isn't bullshit if you believe the things that that rule is based on. So like, for example... You have this idea that like viral load, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist, but like the idea is that like, if you're, if you're mad, the, the idea is that masks are going to trap, you know, the virus, they're not going to like let it out. And if you think of like a big airplane, you're all, let's say, let's say 1% of the public has COVID at any one time. That means one in a hundred people, the more people that you have in a space, the more it's going to trend toward the actual number of people. So like, if you have a plane filled with 200 people, chances are that two people have it in that plane. So if you can reduce the amount of viral load that they're spewing out, you actually reduce hugely the number of people that are infected. The reason it's kind of hilarious on planes is because again, their filtration, they have HEPA filters, they change the air something like six times every four minutes or something. It's absurd how many times on an airplane the air is changed, sent through a HEPA filter, and it doesn't really spread. It doesn't. And so that's why that- like, But I'm not on about masks on a plane. I'm not about, you, you can take your mask off when you're eating and drinking. Yeah, yeah, but my point is that so people just do that all flight. Yeah, well, they do do that all. Yeah, they 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 do. Do you see the guy? There was one thing where a guy had a, a chip in his mouth, a McDonald's chip, and he just had it there the whole flight. That's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, like, you, you fall asleep like that. They've I've I've done the thing where I've like kind of taken it off my ear, and they uh they they do come and they like wake you up and and they'll try to like get you to put the mask on. You have to do it, but. The reason I'm saying the reason that that makes sense is like if most people have it, the goal is the goal is always like statistical uh, reduction of viral load in an area, and their hope is that like the person who has you know the virus is complying with the mask rule, and they're probably right about that, except the fact that like the mask doesn't really reduce it. The thing that saves you on an airplane is air filtration. Okay, every time, like it's the, the air filtration is has been the answer, and like nobody wants to talk about it because it's not popular politically. Hmm. So let me ask you something. This conversation we're having right now, um, is this useful to the world? Do we, are we doing a good thing or we add into the noise? Because I'm always questioning myself, like what, what good comes of this? Well, I think, I think that like providing a framework, because, okay, there's a lot of people out there who are, uh, who are very confused by what's going on. And, 
and I think I think everyone's kind of trying to figure out intellectually how to talk about it, and, and they're trying to find words. So I I don't know. I mean, like I think that giving giving people uh, new new ways to think about it is is a little bit helpful, at least. <laughs> I think that everyone is very confused and trying to figure out what's going on, including you and me. Well, we've touched lots of complicated, big subjects. But we haven't solved any of them. And we haven't solved right. any of them. We're not the experts on any of them. So when, it's not like we can educate people really on Ukraine, Russia. We can't really educate people on COVID. We can't, we can't educate. We're not the experts, right? So what value do we add? Is, is the value here showing that you can have open civil debates and there should be more of this? Is it trying to encourage people to consider opinions outside themselves? Is it trying to avoid audience capture and bias? Like, what 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 are the effective things we can do in this situation? I think I think for me, the thing that's been most effective, and I, I wish that someone had explained this early on because like it, it's something that is is something sort of new that I've learned, is the notion that you can you can find yourself being completely wrong in big ways that are considered morally reprehensible at the time, because again, we apply everything, we apply a moral framework to everything nowadays and have the capability to recognize it, walk away from it and change your thinking about, you know, and examine why that happened. Like, I think that there needs to be a permission to being wrong again. You have to, it's, it has to be permitted. Yeah. You're allowed to believe in QAnon for two weeks. You're allowed to do that. It's fine. You're allowed to like believe in hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or whatever it is. And you're allowed to even have that belief for a very long time. But you should you should always be examining your positions because like things change and uh, and maybe things are not compatible. Like in the future, you'll find that like the things that you believe are not compatible with things that you previously believed. Well, being wrong is part of free speech as it's well. It's totally good. It's good. <laughs> like it's okay to take positions that you're going to find out you're wrong about. Um, I also think that it's very difficult for people to kind of like figure out where politics has entered the fray when it comes to conversation. Like where are like the, the, the Russia Ukraine situation is perfectly good. Like why is this a left right divide? Why, why is there like, why does it seem that the right is all pro Russia and the left is all pro Ukraine? Like, I don't understand where this bifurcation happened. And I think that people need to recognize it two weeks ago. They knew nothing about either subject. What about if Trump was still in power and uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine? I mean, I know Trump thinks it wouldn't happen, but what if? Do you think the right it would, would it, and, and, and say the Trump administration was openly supporting the Ukrainian administration? Do you think the right would be? Yes, pro-Ukraine. So do you think it's an anti-Biden thing? I don't think it's anti-Biden. I, I, think, I think that the, the framework they apply is very different for... Uh, for the moment. And I don't understand why who's in power is affecting the framework because uh -huh. it's not explicitly anti-Biden. Like they, if you talk to them, they will truly tell you that they have thought it through. They've considered all of the sides and they're like, you know, pro-Russia. Um, and it's, it's strange. Cause like, I think for example, the anti-vaccine stuff. Oh, just on that point, up, up, are people that pro-Russia? Like, I'm, I'm struggling to think of times where I've seen people specifically pro-Russia. I've seen, know, I I've seen, pro -Russia, I've but seen like, more, what I've seen is more of anti-Ukraine or suspicious of Ukraine or suspicious of agendas. Again, not pro-Russia, but also saying uh, more kind of like the arguments are, you know, there, were, there was an agreement not to go one inch you know, east of 
Berlin or whatever it was, whatever, what, or East of Germany, whatever it was. For NATO. For NATO, yeah. and now NATO is, and there, it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Why is it in Eastern Europe? Like, I've seen those arguments. I've seen them, people say, you've provoked them. I've seen people say, look, there's Nazis in Eastern uh, Ukraine. I've seen all this, but I, haven't, I can't think of specific pro-Russia tweets or pro-Russia articles. I think it's slightly different yeah I, I think you're right actually i think I, but but it's weird that everyone moves in unison like course, many of these yeah. things are the, the first time people have ever heard of these treaties or they've ever heard the rhetoric of putin they've ever heard the rhetoric about nato uh, they've ever heard about the azov battalion um they've ever considered the fact that like you know like this is it's 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 moving in like a weird direction it's very strange to me that that's that that everyone kind of moves in unison and i I, I firmly, I think you're correct. I think, well, I don't know that you're asserting this, but I firmly believe that if Trump were in office, these same people would be on the other side and the left would be on the other side of this. Hmm. Like it would be the same rhetoric. And that's kind of like- I don't know. I, I think I'm it would sure. be. Maybe the anti-war left would be in a different, like similarly uh, situated, but it feels like if Trump were in office, you'd have a complete switching. And I, I think there's like, I think about like the vaccine rhetoric. When Trump was in office, people were ready for the vaccine. I think that if Trump had, if it had been released under Trump or like really rolled out strongly under Trump um, pre the election, I think you would have had very little pushback from the right. You would have had a lot of pushback from the left. Biden takes over. Now we have like this strong contingent of people on the right who are very anti-vaccine. And this, everybody on the left is like, you idiots, it's good for you. You should take it, take it every day. And it's very weird. But what's strange about it to me is that the right is stolid in their opinion now. And if they were to, if Trump were reelected, let's say, they wouldn't change it. They wouldn't go back and now like the vaccine's okay. He is coming back though, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's, and I think he's going to win. Well, uh, you take that. Take that if he does come back, he will win. <laughs> I, I think. I think he will. I think he's an unstoppable force. I think that people don't. I think I don't know how you guys think about this in the UK, but I, I can tell you, uh, on the right in America, there is a strong resentment of the way the left treated them the last five, six years. Yeah, and I think right, the, right and rightly so. They were tr all treated like idiots. Yes, and morons. And I think I think the left believes that they were treated poorly, and. It, it feels very much like the right is extremely mobilized, ready to put someone, or well, Trump specifically, uh, back in office for the purpose of vengeance and uh, and you know just exacting revenge. My um, my friend Chart Westcott made a very interesting point about Trump. You know me, I I didn't like him, um, and there, there was a lot about him I didn't like. We just we had a long conversation about it, but he said forget his personality, focus on his policies and what he's delivered. And I thought that was a really interesting point because I was trying to like understand it. And uh, I don't, again, it's like anything else. There's no binary position on this, but I think his prison reform stuff was really interesting. Very interesting. Funding uh, funding black colleges. I yeah. mean, there's all sorts of stuff. The, the, he, under, he fully understood the risk of Chinese expansion, Yeah, which I think we can all universally agree is something to be concerned about especially with the uh, CBDCs and uh, social credit scores and yep. expansion of Belt and Road. Again, he got that. And I think he got a lot, I think he got a lot wrong. I think in calling everything f fake media and fake news, I think that was wrong. We have the equivalent of that in Bitcoin. Everything's a scam. Everything's a scam, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
uh, I, I don't. I don't think he was wrong about that. I think. I think that in America, yeah. I don't think everything was fake news. I don't think you can't just call like you can't call something which is uh, just because it's critical of you just is fake news. Correct, but there was no, there was plenty to criticize Trump about, but there was nothing accurate that was released in those four years. Nothing like it was all absolute, absolutely drivel. You couldn't you couldn't comb through it. You couldn't figure out what was true and what was not on both sides, the supporting side and like the other side. It was all complete and utter crap. I broadly agree. I yeah. mean, but, it, but it didn't get off to a good start with, no. with the the false claims how many people at his uh, inauguration and the use of different camera angles, which was him starting off on a lie. But who cares? Like I was I was also amazed by the lies because like the things that people got like their their heads in a tizzy about were things that like other administrations have also lied about and and no one cared because they're small, like white lies. But for him, they had a, they had entire departments of news organizations basically going through everything he said. And they would they would go look at the political fact checker stuff. It's amazing. It's like Donald Trump said that Melania Trump is the most uh, is America's favorite first lady. This is false. This is a lie. She is not America's favorite first lady. The favorite first lady by statistics is. And you're like, really? Like that's that's what we're stooping to? <laughs> no, I know I know what you mean. But but what I'm saying is is like we're in this kind of weird post-truth world. Yes. Where, where it feels like anyone's willing to lie. I mean, we can't get into it now, but we've had a big conversation this morning about a current situation. And there's a way out of it by lying. And there's a way where you probably don't get out of it by telling the truth. And it's like, if the lie is told, it protects you. But the individual that we're talking about, both economically and on a credibility-wise, but telling the truth risks credibility and risks themselves economically. But there's a butterfly effect from them telling the lie. And we, you know, the conclusion we come to, the important thing to do is tell the truth, even if it affects you. And how many people are willing to do that these days? In a postmodern world, Peter, sometimes the most honest thing you can do is lie. It's it's just true, man. Like I've said this before, like there are, uh, I'll give you a good example. Many years ago, um, we were accused by people in uh, Ethereum of sending death threats. And we got a call from Coindesk and asked us if we sent death threats. And our answer was absolutely. We've been sending death threats for ages. And (laughs) what happens is the entire article then is about whether we were telling the truth about whether we sent death threats or not. And the conclusion is they don't think that we actually sent death threats. Okay, so you called a bluff. Yeah, but like that's the thing. Like in a in a in a in a world of post truth, it doesn't matter what you say. It just it matters what is true. I mean, like there has to be at some level like actual truth at the basis of this stuff. You know, if 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 you if you were to like look at a color and you know you look at it and a million out of a million people will say that color is red, and then someone I don't know uh, makes you say that that like puts a gun to your head and says you have to say that this color is yellow, like you you'd be like yeah the color is yellow absolutely, and it doesn't make it yellow, but still red. Back, back to coercion. <laughs> <laughs> it's still red. Like it doesn't yeah. matter what you actually think of it. The color is still red. So what do we do then? <laughs> I feel like disengaging from it all. Yeah, I think that that's one option. You can you can disengage, um, or you can or you can believe strongly in the notion that post truth doesn't work, and just do what you're doing and realize that everybody else knows that too. 
There's a there's a small subset of people that believe that that truth doesn't exist. Truth is a construct, and that's that comes out of this like this notion of um, sort of this, this postmodernist notion of deconstruction. Everything can be deconstructed down to its like fundamental elements, and nothing matters. You can you can believe that that's how the world is. It doesn't work in the long run. It works in the short run. It works for like gains in power, but you can know. There's things that you can know about the world. And this is, I think, like actually sort of the fundamental philosophy of Bitcoin maximalism. I believe Bitcoin is going to win. I believe Bitcoin has already won. It doesn't matter to me what kind of development happens in Ethereum or what kind of dApps people download to their phone or whether DeFi um, exists or not. It doesn't matter because in the long run, it will fail, in my opinion. Hmm. And it doesn't matter what happens. I don't really fight it. Like, you're like, oh, Ethereum's up to $3,000. It's great. Like, okay, great. Won't be there forever. I think, do you know what would be useful and is for people to be able to recognize what is a fact, what is an opinion, and what is an interpretation? Because they are different things. So, for example, you, you, could take it back to you could take it back to climate. There are things that are fact. Like, you can record global Earth uh, surface temperatures. Right. And you can record them. That is a fact. You can interpret that in different ways and you can have an opinion on what that is. And I think there's a lot of people getting lost in opinions and interpretations being fact. And I think if people realize what is interpretation, what is an opinion and where there is room for error, yeah. we can get to a place where we can have a better discussion around complicated subjects. Well, in, in a discussion generally, like you, you want to try, I mean, this is how it used to be. This is not how we do it now. Yeah. But it used to be that you'd get to premises. Right. You'd ask somebody like, why do you think that? Like, go back. Like, let's de the deconstruction of the opinion. Like th this, this is fundamentally where things are correct. Like you do, you should deconstruct where a person came from. This was the Socratic method. The Socratic method exists for me to walk you through how I got to a place. Right. And then for you to deconstruct what I did and tell me where I got it wrong. I found that people are very suspicious of this sort of Socratic like walkthrough where you walk people through things, they'd be like, oh, you're trying to get me to agree with you. I was like, no, I'm just trying to get you to understand where my thinking is. And that's dead. Nobody does that anymore. They don't, they don't develop, like they don't go back to an understanding of the premise. Like again, the pandemic is a great example. It's just at the end, your opinion is wrong because my facts, like my facts, which I've, I've pulled from 12 papers are correct. And like, no, your facts are wrong because my facts, which I pulled from 12 papers are correct. And it's two sides yelling at each other and trying to negate the other one rather than being like, well, actually, like if we go back to like the base premise and try to understand what actually matters, maybe the conclusion is, not X or Y, maybe the conclusion is like C. And you guys have no framework for understanding C because you focused on X and Y and that's where the battle is being fought on X and Y. Mean, meanwhile, I'm over here in the matrix and I'm just kind of like walking past you with the actual answer, fully knowing that I have the actual answer and looking at you two fighting and just being like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> like, why are you guys fighting about that? The matrix doesn't exist. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> You're right, it doesn't. <laughs> we come back full circle, man. Anything we not talked about? Well, tons of things that you want that you want to talk about. <laughs> no, I think we're good, man. Listen, was uh, that interesting? I hope that was interesting. I think that was. I think it was a good discussion. I think it's a good discussion. Yeah. I, I, I would. I, I know. I know what the comments will be. Uh -huh. I know the emails I'm going to receive. I know the pro ones, the neutral ones, and the con ones I'm going to receive. I, I understand it all. I would encourage a lot of people to to, to read Jonathan Heights, The Righteous Mind. Just spend a little yeah. bit more time. Accepting I was going to say this about Jonathan. What's, what's interesting to me is that Jonathan Haidt himself is viewed as a right-wing figure, particularly in the U.S. 
Yeah, but there was that period where if you didn't hold a left view, you were all right. It's still, still the case. View, it's still the case. I think. I think less so. I think less so. I think. I think. I think. Do, oh. do you find that interesting? That a person that you yourself are reading as an in, like a, a, a matter of information gathering is himself viewed as a sort of a compromised author, a, a compromised source. It, do, it does, doesn't surprise me. Listen, here in the U.S. and with a lot of the listeners of my show, I'm considered a lefty and back home with my friends i'm considered right-wing conspiracy so it's all it's all kind of like einstein would like this it's all relative it is relative. <laughs> it's all relative to, to the position of the other to the observer that is that is the height thing is interesting and i think this is worth really quick touching on there is a, a poisoning of source material that has happened over the last few years as well and I think that's really interesting to think about because like mm -hmm. you now you now know you cannot know whether the source that you are using is considered poison by the other side. And and that's in all cases. Well, we had this uh with Russell Brand this last couple of weeks. Russell Brand uh across British media has been uh uh been branded as a right wing conspiracy theorist. So he's now poisoned. He's poisoned. He has been poisoned. And yeah, one of the things I'm trying to do with this show is walk a delicate line because I don't want to be poisoned by people I think would benefit from understanding about Bitcoin. It's a very delicate line to try and walk, to be intellectually honest while at the same time not being poisoned. Well, I think I think people should understand too, like in your case, if if it were if it were to come out that Jonathan Haidt is in fact a poisonous source, you would be okay modifying your opinion on that source. Of course, I modify my opinion all the time. And, and I think that's really interesting is that like that that to me is the way in which the discussions have failed is that people will not willingly sort of discredit their own sources or discredit the information that they have or like look for new information. And I, I, I think Jonathan Haidt's fine. I, I have no problem with him. I just, yeah, think, I just think it's really interesting that like, I know that there's going to be a contingent of people that will hear Jonathan Haidt's name and be like, oh, I knew he was right. Yeah. I knew that. I knew that Peter was a righty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's, it's all relative. You know, it depends on where you are. That's why you consider somebody else. Is it like Jordan Peterson, right? Or like a Camille Pagley or something like that. You, you, you bring them up and people will instantly pigeonhole you. It's, it's very interesting that like sources now have like sort of political bends to them. And there are sources that are acceptable for like a person to talk about and sources that are not acceptable. Who do you, who out there do, do you think is a moderate or or a centrist, and when I say a, like moderate slash centrist, they don't have to be center or, or opinion on each thing, but they are willing to navigate between. How many actually can you think of that exist out there? The answer, the answer for every single person alive right now is myself, huh. and, and I find that I've never, I've never experienced that before. Every single person I've talked to in the last five years has the same story that you have. Among my friends. I'm a right-wing Nazi. Among everyone else, I'm a left-winger. Everybody, everybody tells me the story. And they, they will use that as evidence that they themselves are the centrist in a conversation. And so who does it? I don't know anymore. Yeah. I don't know who actually is a centrist. Um, I don't know what a centrist looks like at the moment because every single person from like the lefty who like burns building down uh, to, to like reform the system. They believe they're centrists and QAnoners believe they're centrists. And uh, you know, the, the working dad. Do they? Do yes, they, do they yes. keep claim to them? I, I think some of them are probably believe themselves to be radicals, but I have, I have found that there is a weird, a weird 
happening right now where every single person believes that they are the centrist. And if you talk, if, if you hear like Antifa talk, they'll talk about this, how the right has all Nazified. They're all right. Like the, the center now is Bernie Sanders, right? That's, that's become a meme in the US. That the center huh. is Bernie Sanders. And like everyone at the moment believes they are the centrist. It's weird because I, I, I rarely hear people claim to be or rarely do I see people try and navigate that. But uh, I understand what you're saying. The, Again, it's all relative. The, the, I, the, all my friends uh, think that I'm a liberal and all of the people that I talk to outside of that group think I'm a righty. Um, that's the new my friend is gay. <laughs> It really, it really is. And like, and so I'm not, I'm not homophobic. I have a gay friend. Like, it, it's, it's sort of that. Like, it, it's, it's received. It's got that sort of amount of, uh, of cachet. Like, everyone believes themselves to be the centrist, and I've never lived in a moment where that's true. It used to be that people could pick a side. They'd be like, oh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a liberal. But like, oh, I'm kind of, you know, conservative. People would pick a side. They would tell you what they were. Now everyone's embarrassed about their actual position and everyone believes they're a centrist. And I've never seen that before. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to have to test that because I'm, I'm not sure I agree that's, that's true. But, Try it. Well, listen, look, I appreciate this, man. I, I just hope people start being a little bit kinder to each other, empath have empathy towards other opinions and stop fighting over everything because I've, throwing myself in the mix and found myself acting like a right prick it's, sometimes. It's going to get weirder, dude. Because because if Donald Trump runs again, like it, half the country is going to lose its mind again. Yes. And uh, the other half is going to be the, sh the schadenfreude of the side that likes Donald Trump is going to be so high that it, like there will be, a, it, it, it's not going to look like the last time he won because the right has reacted to the left's moving left and has moved right. And it's going, it's, it, it's, it's going to look much weirder, much more bifurcated. And it will be, I, I, I guess I would say the only hope we really have of that, of that not happening is the rock, the rock runs. <laughs> The rock, the rock, the rock. The, other, the other one I heard was um, Matthew McConaughey, no, could be president. Who's the guy from who was in the ER? Um, married. The, oh, George Clooney. George Clooney. They said if George, oh, he could run. I'd vote for him. He's really good looking. I'm not even gay, and I think that. No, I was told that, like if George Clooney runs, yeah, a lot, a lot of Republican women will vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that Donald Trump versus the Rock? I mean, it's. I, I just the, the problem with the problem with it is that like. Anybody running on the left right now is is captured by the left ideology. And on the right side, there's not as much of that capture because there's a, a sort of like worship and love of Trump. So it's more of like captured by Trumpism, which is not conservatism. It's it's like the the right coalition is captured by Trump. The left, the left candidate is captured by the left coalition. And that's a very it's very strange and it's different. <laughs> I feel like but but would you would you attribute a non-zero probability that it's Trump versus The Rock? Uh, I don't think. Would it surprise if it happened? Would because what a world, what a time to be alive! Donald Trump versus The Rock I'm, I'm in the, the presidential debate. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that like people have misunderstood like the celebrity cachet that exists. Like like name recognition is probably the most important thing in politics. And it was inevitable that celebrities figured that out. Yeah. And now that they have going forward, I mean, like, I don't know why they didn't figure this out during Reagan. Like that, that's what happens. Like Elvis should have run for president, you know, like, but now that, now that that's a thing, 
like it's it's not it's not going to be four or five cycles here before we have a Scientologist as president. Oh God. You know? And that's that's the thing. Like I could, it's an, it's a non-zero probability that like it's Trump versus any celebrity. Like it could be Trump versus Oprah. For for all I know, I just think Trump versus The Rock would be just so entertaining. It would be hilarious. I would like uh, Trump versus Schwarzenegger because they were both uh, yeah, apprentices. Schwarzenegger <laughs> could, he, he couldn't run for president, right? Because he's not a native. Oh, he's, he's Austrian. He's Austrian. He's born in yeah, Austria. That's what he, he has that accent. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, there was Obama was uh, Kenyan, right? Just kidding. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Look, brilliant. That's a good time to end it. Love you, dude. Appreciate you coming in. You can do this whenever the fuck you want. You come on. We'll talk shit whenever. Literally. Awesome. Love, Love it. You, Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.